In the event that I stop talking before we finish tonight, I, we have an extra microphone if we end up doing questions and answers, but I, I can't guarantee I'll stop talking. So I have a few things on my mind. It's always it's a strange event for me because I often uh, come up here and I have no idea what I'm going to say, but something came to me while I was sitting just in appreciation of, of just the nature, the miracle of the consciousness that, uh, through which each of us perceives, just the fact of awareness, the fact of that it takes absolutely no effort for you to perceive uh, what I'm saying, uh, that Consciousness of hearing arises spontaneously. Uh, feeling, all of that uh, depends on this um, ever-available presence of awareness. And it's often um, something that we think we have to create. Uh, something that we've lost that then has to be found. Uh, something that we have to become. And therefore, there's this great striving for awareness uh, when it is is the most fundamental, most natural thing to each of us. Uh, It's what I think allowed the Buddha to, while sitting under the Bodhi tree, when his mind stopped striving so hard, stopped searching, stopped grasping, stopped condemning, stopped uh, trying to become somebody, trying to make more a better me. When all of that stopped and he, his mind uh, relaxed a little bit, in a flash of insight, he realized that the, the very freedom that he had been searching for was none other than the nature of, of his own mind, the nature of each of our minds. Uh, so close that it's hard to see, uh, like trying to see our own face. But nevertheless, all the wisdom teachings, I think, in all traditions point to the fact that in some fundamental way, no effort is needed to, uh, to wake up to our true nature because it's already what is awake and perceiving in this very instant. We rather need to uh, notice, make effort to notice all the ways that we uh, occlude or uh, cloud or block or uh, obscure that, that natural wakefulness, that natural freedom, that what the Tibetan teacher Noshul Ken calls natural great peace. And in the Advaita tradition or other more, more Hindu-related traditions there, I, I think of the, the great uh, ecstatic saint uh, Ramakrishna, who probably many of you have read. He's really fun to read his utterings. His, he would just sit around the garden hanging out with people and he would then just naturally be pulled into the seclusion of, of the nature of his own mind. 
just his mind would withdraw from external mindfulness for a moment and be pulled into the to not just internal objects of mindfulness, but the internal nature of the of consciousness itself. And he'd just sit there for a while, and everybody would be hanging out in the garden, and then he'd finally open his eyes. And just spontaneously, he would just start letting out a song of freedom. And one of them, one of them that I, I found just so beautiful, he just opened his eyes one day, and he said, Oh, longing mind! Dwell within the depths of your own pure nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Do not confine your innate infinity within the mansions of name and form, of finitude. Your naked awareness alone, O mind, is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. And then he goes about his business, <laughs> completely ordinary, laughing and crying, and then uh, some, other, some other little mind. But not because, because he, uh, he has some kind of privileged nature of mind, it's because he just recognized uh, what all of us already have within us. One of my teachers, an Advaita master named H.W.L. Punja, he said it took him 40 years to realize that uh, it takes no effort to, to, uh, to realize your true nature. It's the cessation of effort. Of course, there's a little paradox here. There's a paradox that says, yes, freedom is the end of seeking and striving, but only those who seek seem to find it. But really, that's, that could be easily taken as an excuse to strive, 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 so that someday you'll realize your true nature. And that, uh, I think the point that he, is, he was making is that uh, I realize this. Don't strive so hard. You don't have to do this. I've done it. I've spent 40 years trying to figure it out. You don't need to spend 40 years. Just... Be who you are, and don't stray away from that, that ever-present, available realization of your, of your uh, f- natural freedom. That nirvana is you. Nirvana is here in this very room. Uh, this very body, as, as Hakuin Zen Master says, this very body is the Buddha. This, this, uh, this is the Pure Land. Now, how many of you are convinced that you have to do something? You have to become someone to be awake. You have to make all kinds of effort. Like I said, it's not, um, it takes a lot of effort to stay awake, to see what it is that binds us. In fact, I, I have a... Oh, I thought I had that passage with me. Maybe I don't. But I like this passage from Peter Matheson. Soon the child's clear eye is clouded over by ideas and opinions, preconceptions and abstractions. Does that sound familiar? Simple free being becomes encrusted in the burdensome armor of the ego. 
Not until years later does an instinct come that a vital sense of mystery has been withdrawn. The sun glints through the pines, the heart is pierced in a moment of beauty and strange pain, like a memory of paradise. After that day, we become seekers. There's a wonderful old, often repeated parable called the lost necklace. This is just one version of it. No special effort is necessary to realize one's true nature. All efforts are eliminating the present obscuration to the truth. A lady is wearing a necklace around her neck. She forgets it, imagines it to be lost, and impulsively looks for it here, there, and everywhere. Not finding it, she asks her friends if they found it anywhere, until one kind friend points to her neck and tells her to feel the necklace around her neck. The seeker does so and feels happy that the necklace is found. Again, when she meets other friends, they ask her if her lost necklace was found. She says yes to them, as if it were lost and later recovered. Her happiness at rediscovering it around her neck is the same as if some lost property was recovered. In fact, she never lost it nor recovered it. And yet, she was once miserable, and now she's happy. So also is with the realization of your true nature, or your Buddha nature. So I just wanted to point to that uh, ever-present uh, fact tonight. But then in the, the second, the other half of this is, is the effort that is required to, uh, to notice uh, where, we, um, where, we've, uh, where our minds have gotten confused. Notice which habits of ours lead us to that sense of having lost something, to that sense of being the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. To the, the, uh, the qualities or states of mind that make us feel that, uh, that happiness is not available to us here, that it must be um, for other people. And that's, the, that's just examples of that are the comparing mind, the create, constructing ourselves as, as not good enough or or better than everyone else, or whatever it is that creates this sense of isolation and separation and makes us irritable and irritating and makes us feel that uh, the world has to change in order for us to, to find our, our true nature and everybody else has to change or we have to change. And so for all of that, for all of the tendencies of mind that, that keep us bound, it is very useful to make effort to keep planting the seeds in our daily life that keep pointing us to, a, um, to that ever-present reality of freedom and all the qualities that come with an open heart and a, 
and a, a sense of presence that is our true nature, but gets obscured. So the Buddha had a, a beautiful list of, of what he called the paramis, or the perfections, those qualities that are an innate expression of our purity, an innate expression of that true nature that's always here, that necklace that, is, that was already around her neck. But uh, these qualities tend to have been given, um, they've gotten uh, weakened by the poisons that tend to play in our mind, or the, the poisons of greed, the poisons of hatred, the poisons of ignorance, or misidentification, misperception of, of reality. And the, the, bur- the everyday burden of falling into the uh, the wiles or the temptations of the voices in our mind that are sometimes represented by the mythical figure Mara who sends us all kinds of messages of I have to, we've talked a lot on Tuesday night about the, the messages of the notion that some kind of temporary pleasure uh, of body or mind, some kind of pleasure will, will make me happy. And the seeking of that pleasure just increases our sense of dissatisfaction, narrows our focus, has the effect uh, when we listen to that voice of Mara that assumes that we have to, whatever it is on your list of what you have to have in order to be happy, just keeps reinforcing the sense that if I don't have that, I'll be miserable. Because our mind is shaped by the way we think. And so Mara represents the voice of, of uh, inclination toward sense pleasures. Mara, Mara reinforces uh, the, the feeling and the voice in our mind of dissatisfaction. That sense there's something wrong, something wrong with me, and I'm not satisfied. And this idea even though it has to be respected as a sign, it, it should be respected as a sign that we have left our, what's already here rather than a sign that we need to go out of ourselves and search, which just reinforces and increases the sense of dissatisfaction. The voice of Mara that is just caught in an insatiable hunger and thirst. Uh, so the, I'm sharing with you right now the, what are called the Ten Armies of Mara. And that's a little bit of a militaristic term, so I don't often use that, but that's some of the language of the way the teachings were offered, that Mara will continually bring to your, for you to battle with or to, to contend with these forces in your mind of temptation and Mara doesn't, Mara is often sometimes called the, the demon or sometimes called the, the devil. But Mara really doesn't want you to do anything bad. Mara just wants to keep you on the wheel of samsara, the wheel of endless becoming, endless striving. Doesn't want you to settle back and discover that effulgence of being that you are, that, that when you stop straying away from yourself. So Mara says, Get lost in pleasure. Feed the wanting mind. That's the number one army of Mara. Dissatisfaction, hunger and thirst, craving, uh, sloth and torpor, dullness of mind. This is another one of the voices of Mara. 
Fear, paranoia, perplexity. This is also one of the armies of Mara. Fear, worry, uh, anxiety. That, that will tend to spawn a lot of disembodiment and searching. Uh, something external to relieve our, our anxiety. When really that the anxiety, the fear, needs to be... It needs to be used as a call back to the um, the pure the the awareness that knows that this is fear, and so then the fear, then anxiety becomes as we talk about a lot here becomes as Trungpa Rinpoche said the manure of bodhi, the very thing that tempts us to go out of ourselves is becomes that uh, that part of our path that brings us home. So we have pleasure, sense pleasures, dissatisfaction, hunger, thirst, craving, sloth and torpor, fear, paranoia, doubt, the voices of doubt. I can't. He can't. We can't. It's not going to work. Discouragement, all of that. This is just an absolute fiction that our mind tells that keeps us bound in a state of, of diminishment state of, of uh, smallness. It's just the voice of doubt. This is Mara. And then the voice of conceit. This is the way the Buddha talked about this is very much as I did before. Conceit and mana. Mana is the word for pride or conceit, but it mostly uh, describes the comparing mind, the measuring mind, the, the mind that puts us above others, that's worried about making sure that we're equal to others or puts ourselves below others. This is another voice of Mara that's keeping you on this endless wheel of thinking that, uh, that you can somehow master the... Uh, you, can, you can become the, the best. Constantly measuring good, better, best, good, enough. And all of that is a, it's a fabrication. It's an overlay on reality that misses the... the uh, inherent beauty in each person, in each thing, the connection of all life. It's so easily lost while we're busy comparing. Uh, gaining reverence and fame, another one of those that seems to be driven by, by mana or conceit. And that's another just voice of Mara, as though that is truly going to make somebody happy. What a joke. Because fame is usually followed by shame, Praise followed by blame, gain followed by loss. This is just the winds, the worldly winds that blow through everybody's life. So any, clearly any one of these polarities is an unreliable refuge. It's just Mara keeping you, uh, keeping you on the wheel of, of searching for something you can't find in the world of changing conditions. And last, um, the internal voice of self-exaltation is considered one of the mar- armies of Mara. Is that, that inflated, just being carried away with our, our own specialness. It's so inherent that we don't need to be carried away with it. We just need to experience it, be it. But it's all just extra, yet we exhaust ourselves exalting in our wonderfulness. So anyway, I think you get the idea that the armies of Mara are, 
are, uh, are seductive. And the way that the Buddha suggested that we counter that is to train ourselves in their, uh, their antidotes, essentially. I'm not going to offer the antidotes to each of those, but to just to uh, more point to the, the qualities that best express our um, living as our, our natural, uh, our true nature, our, all our uh, natural wholesome qualities that seem to flow from being present, being awake. And the first one that Tara alluded to in, the, in our intermission is the first parami that the Buddha was considered uh, had cons- was considered to have uh, developed to perfection is the quality of generosity. It's the first parami, the first teaching that the Buddha offered to lay people like us. Something that can that melts away the feeling of separate, that weakens the feeling of hunger and increases the feeling of fullness. The practice of every day in whatever way we're capable of, and it's a process and it's an evolution, but in whatever way possible, we practice giving. We practice generosity. The very act of it produces joy. It's joy. We can have joy in the thought of it, joy in the act of it, joy in the memory of it. It brings joy to the giver. It brings joy to the receiver. It's one of those things that melts away that separateness and gives us a a felt experience that we're already home, that we don't, need to, we don't need to become somebody different. We just need to let the qualities that are innate in our hearts flow and not let a single day pass without... Well, he said, don't let, if we knew how powerful this is, we wouldn't let a single meal pass without sharing it. But I would say, if we knew how powerful this force is, we wouldn't let a single day pass without making some kind of offering of generosity to a friend, a voice, a gesture, a hug, whatever it is, but to follow that impulse that is so natural in our hearts to give and not to, uh, not to give in to the, the voice of fear. It's really a counterbalance to fear and lack and, um, and clinging. So there's generosity, and then last week I talked about one of the the counter uh, the counterbalance for the the tendency to uh, to fall into the uh, the counterfeit coins of of think of the feeling of not telling the truth or or stealing or whatever or temp, or taking intoxicants that may just give you a little pleasure, but then makes our world and our life crazy, instead practicing every day, letting virtue, morality, ethics be the guiding light of your life so that you can offer to yourself the bliss of blamelessness and offer that gift of fearlessness that that no one has to fear you because your life expresses that purity of action to go along with the pure nature of awareness. So virtue, so we've got generosity, virtue, uh, renunciation, that you actually practice counterbalancing the tendency toward greed and hatred, and you, you renounce those impulses through the cultivation of, of uh, loving kindness and, um, and restraint 
simplicity. We can do that. We're all trainable. I don't know, does this give you any confidence or does it feel daunting? For some reason, this, to me, this is, we're faced with this every day, this possibility of, of strengthening these. And, and there, it, it, it's, as Sylvia Borstein, my colleague and friend, titled her, her first book, It's Easier Than You Think. What's really hard is staying unconscious. That's hard. That's what makes us bound up our nervous systems tense and vibrating and unable to really relax into the nature of life. Because we don't get fed when we act out. But we get fed every time that we exercise restraint or we practice non-harming or we practice generosity. And then the fourth parami or perfection is wisdom. Every day, developing our wisdom and our understanding. Try to, every day, try to to realize the Four Noble Truths, at least if we were talking about this context, open to dukkha, wherever you see it. It's not something wrong. This is how it is. Open to the cause of it. See all the ways in your own mind and body that, that dissatisfaction is increased through craving, through clinging, through condemning, through that endless waiting for the future that never arrives. And then, in terms of the cultivation of the parmi of wisdom, abandon the cause. Let go. To me, the cultivation of wisdom is cultivating, it's synonymous with letting go. It's also synonymous with equanimity. Developing that, that unshakable evenness of mind. And how do we do that? We develop the other paramis. We do, any, we do that which enhances every day our vital energy. Don't do anything that zaps your energy. Do everything that feeds it. What does that look like? <laughs> Eat well. Exercise. Do everything you can to sleep well. Uh, make sure that you breathe fresh air. All the things that everybody knows how to do to stay healthy. You can't make excuses about this. And notice your mind saying, well, well, I don't like to exercise. What? It doesn't matter. Do it. Our mind will find so many excuses, and yet we all have, we have an inexhaustible energy. And so that the other way to, to plug into that inexhaustible resource is to, is to stay present. And that's really the, the navigator. Being mindful is the navigator that, that allows all of these qualities to, to grow. So we have generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience. That's just the, the counter. That's the counterbalance for, for impatience or ill will, aversion. So much restlessness and aversion, patience. Really cultivating that habit of, of breathing, of staying in our body, of noticing, knowing how to exercise the sacred pause, how to pause, how to recognize the. To me, impatience comes from the habitual mental state of rushing. That has nothing to do with speed, really. It has, some, it has something to do with speed, but it has much more to do with the habit of a mind that's a little bit frenzied. 
And so it's noticing that it's starting to use that moment of rushing as a reminder to soften, to pause, to try not to act out of a state of rushing. Doesn't mean that you start that you do things slowly, but it can help if you do the things you can do slowly. But can't get into that too much tonight. Last week I talked about truthfulness, telling the truth. Just that telling ourselves the truth, telling others the truth, authenticity, uh, just making a commitment to the truth. Not a commitment to, as Ashkvagosa said, not a, a committing to a life of, not to a life of self, but a life of truth. Because it is such an expression of our boundless, interdependent nature. Because the moment you tell an untruth, it, uh, you're saying, you're declaring to yourself that you're not, uh, that your action, that you're not connected to everything. That you're not the fullness of life. That you are that you're protecting some kind of separate little compartment of, of me and mine. And that's a fundamental delusion. So telling the truth is an expression of our, of our vastness. Because this, the true direction of, of all practice is from the narrow vortex of isolation to the wide gravitational field of, of interdependence and interbeing to the seeing through the self-illusion and seeing through the illusion of other. That's really, it all, it's all about that. So that we actually can feel at home in this world instead of, instead of apart from the flow of life. So just a few more. Uh, the eighth parami is resolve or just determination, resolve. And uh, sometimes we, we tend to get we lose a sense of determination, lose a sense of, of whatever that fire is, of, of resolve to stay with things. It's kind of the fire in the belly. And, and we can think that, oh, I don't have that, or somebody else has that, I don't have that. But it's within everyone. And it's simply a matter of inclining our, our hearts to be resolute in our practice, as Ajahn Sumedho says, determined to be awakened, not to be conceited or foolish, but determined. Even when the going is rough, remind yourself of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, as he would say. Letting go of despair, letting go of anguish, letting go of everything that, that we habitually cling to and identify with. And so you just keep going. You keep letting go, moment by moment. This is what helps us keep remembering our true nature. And of course, we cannot get through the list of the, of the, of the um, paramis without talking about loving kindness. Loving kindness is the, is the face of emptiness, is the face of openness. If you're, if you're open, you can't help it but express loving kindness. But our minds have become so uh, contracted in aversion that they need to sometimes consciously be inclined toward goodwill. So every day, under your breath, by action, word, thought, wish people well, wish yourself well. I discovered walking up Dolores Street in the first 18 years of leading the sitting group or 20 years or whatever, 
I um, lived on Dolores Street. I would have my meal, a little small meal, at the what used to be called the Real Good Karma restaurant that then became the Dolores Street Cafe. And I would do that before the sitting group. Then I would walk up the hill to the sitting group, and it became my ritual to walk up that hill. And it didn't matter how contracted I was, how tired I was, how much I didn't feel like going and leading a group or anything, but I, on the way up the hill, I, you know, I would do my metaphrases. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, and mine were really simple in those days. Happy, peaceful, free of suffering, may I live with ease. And just that gesture of kindness, of bathing, in the, of well-wishing, of, of giving myself some attention, some kind attention, it was transformative. I, and I would marvel, and I would often share on the Tuesday nights that uh, I had just gotten done doing that, and I was just amazed at how differently, different I felt. So inclining toward the purification of our hearts, which it's remarkable how, how uh, effective the uh, conscious cultivation of loving kindness is. And if you don't know the formal practices, learn it. Uh, we do it here every now and then, but if you don't know it, find out. And then make it a central part of your daily uh, remembering of your true nature. And uh, I already gave the, I already spoke of the, the last of the parmies, which is the last of the seven factors of enlightenment, the last of the, um, the last of the Brahma Viharas, and the last of the parmies is the, uh, the, expression of the deepest understanding is that unshakable balance of mind of equanimity which includes which is it which is includes all of the other brahma viharas of love of compassion of joy uh, and yet allows the the joys and the sorrows to be uh, experienced without losing without falling into Greed, or not falling into into despair, opening our heart to the world, but being able to stay wide open, our heart as wide as the world, to have that impartial sky-like openness to whatever presents itself. And each of us has that as our birthright, the capacity to have that kind of equanimity, that kind of balance. It's home, and it's really a matter of not straying away from ourselves, and it's a matter of of cultivating these qualities that help us stay here. So that's all I wanted to say. If there are any questions or comments, descriptions, we have a microphone. Please, Tanya, welcome. You want the mic or do you... When the incident in Connecticut, I'm going to repeat for the purpose of people listening okay. from afar. When the yes, during the twenty-six acts of kindness, some people were doing it. Is this 
Maybe you can question everything you do and ask yourself, is this kind? Like, I'm honking my horn at someone's book. Is that kind? It's not really kind. <laughs> Great. So noticing what's unkind as well as... Great. Beautiful. Thank you. Yes. Great. Beautiful. Yeah. It can be all very creative. You don't have to follow any cookie cutter approach to kindness. Is, is this is what I'm saying, doing, or thinking kind? Because then it brings in generosity. Oh, I want to be kind. I want to be kind. Beautiful. Great. No, you're doing great. Thank you. Thank you. Please, Heidi Jane. I'm not sure I could speak about resolve and letting go. I'm not sure I could do it short. Uh, <laughs> another time, I would, I'd love to. But I'd say a, a, good, a good practice is resolve to let go. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate the question. It's actually a deep question about, about uh, when to, how long to stay with things and when to... When to uh, yeah, when it shades into clinging, when there's clinging, when there's, when your suffering is because you're dependent on a result, that that's usually the time to let go. That mean doesn't mean let go of the efforts. It means let go of the dependency on the result. Please. Oh, a little bit more about non-harming. Well, in the, just in the general teachings, the encouragement is for, especially for, for daily life, to keep five training guidelines, to not cause harm with our, uh, to not uh, kill, not steal, so have a reverence for life, not take that which is not offered, freely, and to not cause harm with our sexuality. That means to be sensitive to whether you're, what the, what's driving your sexuality. Is it just lust or is it caring? And, and to be very di- discerning about, because there's so much harm caused with sexuality, to not cause harm with our speech, to speak truthfully, in a timely way for the benefit who to the benefit of whoever we may be speaking to and to speak harmoniously not harshly and not to uh, to uh, gossip to see if as a practice we can avoid as one of my teachers did avoid talking about third persons somebody not present and uh, finally not uh, not causing harm through uh, our carelessness and heedlessness that comes from the excessive use of intoxicants. So to refrain from intoxicants to the point that they cause uh, carelessness and heedlessness. And some would say to refrain altogether. But, so that's basically 
and the idea that whatever, whatever harm you cause, you cause yourself. There's just no other. And the, to act, to do unto others as you would want to have done unto you. So I think that's about all the time we have tonight. And I appreciate all of you sitting through the evening and being here. And I'd just like us to just have 10 seconds or 30 seconds of quiet to... Uh, to remember once again that we don't exist independently apart from each other, that we, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, we inter-are, that interbeing is the, cent- is the deepest nature of our existence, and that all of our actions of body, speech, and mind have reverberations, and even coming here tonight has reverberations, and we make that conscious by dedicating any goodness, any blessings, any, any benefits, any fruits uh, that have arisen from our practice. We dedicate whatever uh, blessings uh, to the welfare and benefit of all beings. And we wish for all beings, just as we wish for ourselves, that uh, we be happy and peaceful. And we wish for all beings that Uh, we are safe and protected from both inner harm and outer harm. May we be safe and may all beings be safe. And due to our practice, may all beings uh, feel healthy and strong and learn to accept uh, theirs and our limitations with grace. And a deep wish that all beings, including ourselves, can have ease in our hearts and a sense of well-being. And a deep wish that, that all beings realize the sacred happiness that's without sorrow, here and now, realize our true nature, that all beings can be liberated and realize what has never been truly lost. May all beings be liberated. And may our practice touch the hearts of all beings. So thank you for your practice, thanks for your generosity, and uh, hope to see you next time. That's for you, David.